Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network Revision podcast, where today you're joining myself, Ted. I'm Emily. I'm Alex. And in today's episode, we're going to be looking at the theme of kingship, looking at some of the lesser-known characters in the play and the role they play, and looking at some quotations we haven't yet covered in our series on Macbeth. So, getting into it, we're going to hand you over to our ever-present history man on the spot. Al, what have you got for us? Thanks, Ted. Um, As always, there's more uh, kind of in-depth information on context found on the first episode of this series. So A must-listen. Definitely go back and listen to that for a more comprehensive coverage. Uh, But we are going to look a little bit at divine right of kings. Um, So, again, that was the idea that kings were appointed by God himself um, and that to to kill the king was therefore a a kind of a sacrilegious act, an act against God. Um, But we also need to, and when we talk about kingship, I think it's important to realise that the thinking of the time... If everybody, if everybody conformed or bought into this idea, which James I, who the king, who was the king during when as Macbeth was written, um, if he if he conformed to it, um, how does the idea that the that God appoints a king uh, match up with the fact that the king is still fallible or, yeah. or is still vulnerable? Um, so, if kings if kings are being killed, then the, the and this is an idea that I think is explored in Macbeth. Um, it's it must be that the, to be appointed is not enough. You have a duty to uphold as king. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to look at Macbeth, we're going to look at Duncan, and then later at Malcolm um, to see how they kind of like fit that ideal, this ideal of service as well as, as, as a um, kind of ruling. So to be a king, I think you are, and then and, and queens as well, but we just stick to kings because they're, they're all kind of male characters in this play. So to be a king is more than just being an individual. Um, you're obviously linked to several networks of meaning um, and you become a symbolic figure as well as, like I said, as well as that individual. Um, you are a leader. You're seen as a father, like a protector. Like people are thought to be under the protection of the king. Mm. Uh, their subjects are under their protection. Um, you need to be a, a warrior, a military leader. You are a judge who kind of meets out justice yeah. um, when needed. Um, you protect the realm, but also uphold order. Um, and we spoke a lot about the kind of like the, the great change of being and natural order the king is obviously an integral part of that so what the play explores is what happens when this natural order is disrupted and when these networks of meaning are are brought down so when a king dies it's not just the individual who dies it's not just the man who dies um it's everything that that was tied up um in that symbol and in that title um so again we'll look first with duncan then um macbeth and his kingship or or what would probably more accurately described as his tyranny Um, and then Malcolm who seems to come and kind of like add a certain balance to this idea of kingship Mm -hmm. Um, and then obviously we'll throw some Machiavellian theory in there as well. Yeah Al you touched quite nicely on it there by talking about how tyranny can also come into a question onto kingship and I think kingship's a really important theme in the play when we consider its its specific context written in the wake of the gunpowder plot where uh, perhaps King James Shakespeare's patron was indeed questioning what it meant to be the king, how he was perhaps under attack and had the failed assassination attempt against him as the monarch at the time. But also, when you're talking about tyranny there, it springs to mind that the ideas we're going to discuss in the podcast can also be relevant to other themes such as betrayal, um, what it means to be a moral and just man, what it means to be a good leader. And of course, the, the characters, some of the more peripheral characters we're going to cover today any character question yeah. based on those, it would be remiss not to discuss kingship in your answer there. And, the, and with, her, with heroism as well, I think. 
And I think what's really good about focusing on kingship as a theme as well is that if you if you kind of make this a, a theme that you feel quite strong and confident on, it'll really enrich your understanding of the play and that, yeah, it familiarises you with some of the lesser-known characters. But there's a lot of, I think, when we do Macbeth as teachers, we can gloss over some of the, the, the moments that are less obviously important. I mean, you might, I don't. Okay, fair enough. But, uh, in, you know, in certain time-constrained situations, we you know do tend to do that. And I think you miss some really important moments in some places where you say different interpretations. And even just before this, we were looking at a kind of a GCSE revision guide and it reduces three characters to one yeah. page who could actually really enrich your understanding. Yeah. And if you're aiming for that top grade, then really looking at the theme of kingship, even if, it, like Em said, even if it doesn't come up, if you get a character question or even a question on ambition, on guilt, yeah. the knowledge you will have from this theme will really develop and support your answer. So definitely worth uh, listening to today and focusing on this as a theme in your revision. Yeah, okay, so we begin our journey into kingship with the start of the play where King Junkin is on the throne. And we spoke about this in the context podcast, but one mistake some pupils often make is they sort of connect King Duncan and his idealistic portrayal and uh, the fact he's presented as a seemingly good king at the start of the play. Mm-hmm. People tend to draw the, the somewhat obvious link between the fact that he must be representative of what King James is. Yeah. And, and a really obvious contextual point that people make is that, oh, King Duncan is almost designed as a character to flatter King James, who is yeah. Shakespeare's patron. Um, and I always try and really emphasise from any study of Duncan that he's actually not presented as an ideal king. No. So he's presented as a good king. Um, he's seemingly righteous. He's used... There is a lot of religious imagery used to describe him from various characters, especially from Macbeth, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're going to discuss a lot in this podcast about what actually makes a good king. And to be a good king... And to be moral, you must actually have the capacity for cruelty, but just choose not to exercise it. And that's sort of reminiscent of something Lady Macbeth says about Macbeth, where she says he's not without ambition, but without the illness that should attend it. And we've always got sort of this grappling throughout the play about what qualities make up the ideal sort of formula for a good king. Now, unfortunately for Duncan, for reasons I'm going to sort of outline here, he's gullible. He's benign, he's gentle, he's overly trusting, he's naive. And ultimately, that leads to his regicide and that leads to him putting uh, his trust in Macbeth, who then goes on to kill him. So I think it's really important as a starting point that we don't see Duncan as a good king and we actually start to criticise the way Duncan is portrayed as being a negligent king who actually doesn't put the good of his state, of his country, of his people... And, and he's overly trusting and overly naive. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree with that point more. And I think it's, I was <laughs> kind of with classes like, well, how do you know King Duncan's not a good king? It's like, well, a giveaway is he gets killed. Yeah. And that'll mm-hmm. do it. And like King James I was a big believer in that you had a duty as a king to take care of your country. You can't do that if you're dead. And I think that's a really important yeah. point. To and Macbeth's, on. let's not forget, Macbeth's rise was facilitated by a previous civil war, which was, again, the previous thing of Cawdor, betraying King mm-hmm. Duncan. Um, so he is someone who's who's weak. And like you said, he's not, he, do, he doesn't have that kind of, um, that cruelty or that capacity for cruelty incorporated into his leadership. And therefore he's just easily walked over, easily betrayed. Um, so he can be as good and pure and as like this good Christian appointed by God. Yeah. But if you, if you're unable to kind of like to see the, to see the traps, to see the daggers in men's yeah. smiles, then you are, you're, 
obviously open to attack. Absolutely. And, and just just as a quick point in terms of the way the public kind of perceived war as well is that, you know, with this play opening with war and ending with kind of a battle and war as well, we see the kind of the chaos and, and bloodshed that instability leads to and the importance of having a king in place who's in control. And I think if you if you live in a city like London or, you know, in Paris, wherever it is, that's under siege, if your king loses that war, that city is slaughtered. Yeah. And like, as members, as like members of the public, if you're invaded by a foreign power, you you know, the consequences for losing a war and being invaded by a foreign power are almost impossible for us to imagine in the modern context. We look at kind of current conflicts and we kind of were shocked by those. That's nothing in comparison to what would have happened for most of history to be in the losing side in a war. So I think you know people wanted stability and they wanted solid kings, and that's. A really important contextual point to understand. Absolutely, and it's interesting because the play starts with the battle, doesn't it? Mm. So it starts with the battle where they're fighting for Duncan's army, and all of the praise is heaped on Macbeth because he's managed to defeat a traitor. And interestingly, the play is cyclical in the fact it begins with the beheading of a traitor and ends with the beheading of a traitor. And and Alex, you make a good point there that. We, we don't judge Duncan because he makes a mistake. We judge him because he doesn't learn from the mistakes he's already made. So, for example, he says about the previous Thane of Cawdor, who turned out to be a traitor, he was a gentleman upon whom I built an absolute trust. Even just looking at the adjective there, absolute, you know, should any king actually have an absolute trust in anyone? That's a question we need to raise here. Especially when coupled with the dramatic irony in that scene where Macbeth then immediately enters after yeah. that line. Macbeth yeah. walks in. As if showing to the audience, Shakespeare's almost comical in that. He shows the audience that here is the next traitor, but he's so ignorant and blind, he can't notice that. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's so quick to sort of heap rewards and titles upon those who follow him. So one of my favourite quotes from the play is at the start, when he speaks to uh, Macbeth and Banquo after that battle in which they've been victorious. And he says to Macbeth, I've begun to plant thee, and I will labour to make thee full of growing. So we've got this beautiful sort of gardening metaphor, an extended metaphor which actually runs throughout the play, where Duncan promises that because of Macbeth's virtues, because of his, his... victory on battle that Duncan will ensure that he is almost promoted that he will rise in ranks that his life will come to fruition that he will continue to get the titles that he deserves and it's so poignant that by the end of the play he's referred to so this is Macbeth sorry he's referred to as the weed and Lennox in act five scene three says do the sovereign flower and drown the weeds so this is this idea that at the very start of the play, this, this imagery of gardening was used to, to describe Duncan's naivety, mm-hmm. but also his willingness to put trust in others, which you could say is an important leadership skill to actually yeah. delegate, to put trust in others. But the fact that he puts his trust in the wrong person, having already made the same mistake with another traitor, that's really sort of drawn upon in Act 5, Scene 3, when Lennox says, Jew the sovereign flower which means restore the rightful king, meaning Malcolm, and drown the weed. So looking at that imagery there, a weed is, is a plant which isn't mm-hmm. wanted. It sucks the nutrients from the plant that we want to grow. And you can see Parasite. that exactly parasitic. And we see that whole imagery there with Macbeth and what he does to the country. And I think one thing that we need to be aware of about the way that kings were seen at the time was that king was country. You know, mm-hmm. if the king was a weed, your country was seen as a weed, just like we said the same before. Yeah. If your king was a tyrant... Your country was suffering under tyranny. Yeah. If your king was positive, 
your country was seen as yeah. being really positive. And that's those networks of meaning that we're talking about. Absolutely. If your king is weak, the state is weak, the state will fall. Um, and you see that throughout Shakespeare, actually, like all the all the history, history um, plays will will look at the nature of kingship or the nature. Even uh, there's 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 a quotation even from the Tempest where they talk about how um, the leaders necessitate the state, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's just a comedy on a small island. But yeah. it's still the same idea that. They- so we see Duncan's naivety from the very start of the play when he speaks in huge gratitude about Macbeth's valiance. He calls him valiant, calls him worthy gentleman. He uses all this hyperbolic imagery to heap praise upon Macbeth without really knowing what he's accomplished at this time because it's all second-hand accounts to him at this point. Mm-hmm. And then he's so immediate in visiting Dunson in the castle of the Macbeths. And this is really where we start to see him as overly gullible, as too trusting. So bearing in mind structurally that we've seen Macbeth and particularly Lady Macbeth discuss the bloody business, the deed, the great quell to kill Duncan in his chamber that night. We then see, again, this dramatically ironic scene where Duncan speaks to Lady Macbeth and says, fair and noble hostess, we are your guests tonight. And he's almost asking structurally because we know that's what Mm -hmm. they're planning i mean she's even said to him we've done our preparations twice done then done double Mm. she says to him you know we've prepared for you don't worry about that and she means we've prepared to murder you and he's so gullible and the way he receives her is to call her um so worthy and he says about macbeth we love him highly yeah and only two scenes ago we saw him being betrayed by someone. So yeah. so this is really important. We don't see Duncan as, as an ideal representation of King. We have to see him as negligent, actually, in yeah. protecting the state and protecting himself, because ultimately, by the very start of Act Two of the play, he's been murdered. And just for, in looking at Shakespeare's motivations here, we've had, with Lady Macbeth, you have one of the most shocking introductions to a literary character ever. And like for that audience, like this kind of like demonic determined, zealous figure, yeah. kind of like storms to the front of the stage, uses his hyper-masculine, hyper-violent language, is appealing to the supernatural, and just kind of blows the audience away as this kind of like unbelievable villain. Yeah. And then we have King Duncan come in, and fair and noble hostess. It's, he couldn't be made to look more of a fool. Yeah, yeah and absolutely. What, and I think that's an important point to note in, in, in Macbeth a lot, is that it uses his kind of the soliloquies to garner this dramatic irony and to involve the audience more. Yeah. But it's like that really cliched scene in a horror film where the kind of, the, you know, the, usually it's the cheerleader who bears the brunt kind of says, oh, let's go for a walk <laughs> in the forest at night. And we know she's going to die. So it's, you know, he is made to look a complete fool yeah, here. Yeah, for walking into it. Yeah, so just deliberate. walking into it. Um, and then we, we do see Macbeth and grapple with his conscience. So we have the famous soliloquy from Act 1, Scene 7, where, and I think we've covered this before, but Macbeth basically debates whether it is right or just or how can he sort of Mm -hmm. come to terms with his decision to kill the king and he basically comes up with the idea that Duncan is there as his guest in double trust and says I as his kinsman and his subject should sort of stop this but then as his host I should against his murder shut the door not not bear the knife myself so he's basically sort of debating and grappling with his conscience here where he says i owe him not only has he promised to plant me not only has he ensured that everyone around has golden opinions of me but he's here as my guest in my castle yet he's under the influence of his wife to kill him Um, and we've got so much if you look at one scene seven we've got so much religious imagery in that soliloquy 
as he grapples with the idea of damnation, which he thinks he almost inevitably will face, mm -hmm. and this idea of all that religious imagery to describe how Duncan was anointed by God. Yeah. Yet, just like you were saying before, Alex, the fact that he was chosen by God and the fact that, you know, it's so hyperbolic in that his angels will plead, trumpets His virtues tongued. will plead like angels, yeah. yeah. And I think that's a really interesting phrase as well, because you talk about um, what are Duncan's virtues, well, they're compared to angels, they're, they're pure, they're good, they're servants of God, appointed by God, but almost too good and too pure for this earth. Uh, he, is some, he is a character who is just... Again, that the image of him dead, his um, silver skin laced with his golden blood. Mm -hmm. He's he's presented in this with this kind of ethereal uh, imagery, and as a result, we almost see him as somebody who could never really live up to what what the reality of politics yeah. was at that yeah. time. Um, and in this play, so it's almost like he was always doomed. He was never he was never cut out for this job. There's Absolutely. the old. It reminds me of the old kind of diplomatic expression, uh, kind of emanates from U.S. politics. The idea that you should. Um, you know, talk softly but carry a big stick, yeah. or the idea that you kind of you had the sticking stick in the carrot. And I think what's interesting about Macbeth here is he's kind of all the reasons why he shouldn't kill King Duncan are because he's you know basically he's a he's great a good guy. Man. Yeah. But what you're really looking for here is the kind of he will absolutely murder me and torture me if this goes wrong. You need the kind of the element of fear as well. Yeah, but there is no fear of Duncan. But, he can manipulate. I mean, and I think this is almost kind of reassuring King James the first in terms of you look at the reaction of what happened to Guy Fawkes and his colleagues and kind of when they were caught, hung, drawn and quartered. Absolute like, brutal torture. But this is almost kind of like, it almost supports that approach in terms of people need to be aware of the... You need the stick, you need the fear. Mm -hmm. You need the kind of the idea. It's not just enough to inspire through nobility and your kind of, your virtue. There needs to be that kind of, that element of fear and that's what a good king has. And here, King Duncan doesn't have that. Yeah. You can't just... Loyalty isn't just garnered by your being a great bloke. No, absolutely. There needs to be that... that and, just, and that's where you can bring in this like the Machiavellian theory in terms of um, what, is, what does like this Machiavellian ideal, um, what does it mean to be a good king, um, is, is to be effective, not to be loved. Um, you want to err on the side of being feared. Nobody feared Duncan. Um, mm -hmm. And we can talk more about how even though Duncan failed in this ideal, Macbeth did as well and how they, they kind of like fail differently. Um, but that's the, that's the point that Duncan is unworthy almost because he's selfish in his morality. Yeah. Um, so to be to be so, controversial. Well, to be so to to allow. So I just think an interesting way to to criticise Duncan is to say he allowed his personal morality to dictate his politics. So he allowed his like his value structure and what he thought, what it kind of like his own judgment of men or his own um, of his of his servants or his own Christian compassion. He allowed that to dictate to him what. Um, like basically what he would do in terms of his policy or the way mm -hmm. he, that he, that he uh, ruled Scotland um, and to do so was to, is to um, kind of blind yourself to the reality of, of other people of yeah. human nature should, or, or so he should almost be like reasoning on a higher plane in terms of like let's look at the big picture here yeah, kind exactly. of like what's the, what's the consequence if this goes wrong what, yeah. what's right for me isn't necessarily what's right for the yeah. country yeah and then, and there's an interesting parallel, and we'll talk about Macbeth in a minute. But he, Macbeth is often seen as this really selfish king. It's he, he uh, gained the crown through just because of vaulting ambition. That was his only real motive. So at the end of that soliloquy, Macbeth says, um, "I have no spur with which to put aside my intent, yeah. but vaulting ambition." That's not that's not an honourable. That's not he's not putting the state first. He's putting his own kind of like lust mm -hmm. for power first. 
Um, but again, you can level a similar accusation at Duncan and saying, you're not putting the state first, you're putting your own um, morality or yeah. your idea. And that's quite a kind of, that in itself is a type of hubris. And what, what I like about what both of you are kind of saying there is that I think in honesty, most teachers and most candidates don't necessarily look at it from that angle. In terms of King Duncan, they might say he could be a better king, but that's quite like a specific mm. reason. Yeah. Um, but there's a really good rationale to that, and I, I do find that quite convincing. So we're going to go on to Macbeth now. Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing to kind of consider with Macbeth is that you know the the key word for Macbeth really is the idea of a tyrant. So just to look at that and what that means, a tyrant is a ruler who acts without any limitations upon him, whether or not that's imposed through uh, a legal structure and a constitution, or even through tradition, or even like, a moral structure. So a ruler who kind of has no limits. Uh, it kind of comes from an ancient Greek term, and what's interesting at looking at its original um, uh, use in ancient Greek is that it was often used to refer to uh, usurpers as well. So if you could be a tyrant, not just if you were a ruler who kind of didn't obey the laws, yeah. but if you were actually arguably in a position without any legitimate right, whether or not that was through uh, the kind of your bloodline or whether or not it was through having been chosen. So I think that's interesting because it's applicable to Macbeth in both senses. He is one a usurper going against the divine right of kings, but also he's a ruler who wasn't lim who was unlimited by the, the moral conventions of the time and the yeah. traditions and very much went against that. Well, we talk about, didn't we, before, like the divine right of kings linking to sort of natural order and the great chain of beings. And as soon as Macbeth's killed Duncan, we've got some of the more minor characters commenting quite sort of eloquently mm -hmm. on the way that nature seems disrupted now. Um, so if you're ever looking for any quotes which link to the divine right of kings and regicide yeah. or the great chain of being being disturbed and the idea of usurping your position, because Macbeth isn't trying to usurp his position there, Lennox says, after Duncan's death, some say the earth was feverous and did shake. And he says, the night has been unruly. And so we've already, before we even see Macbeth as a king, uh, Shakespeare foregrounds his kingship with this idea of him going against nature, doing something which is against the state, which is not just causing his people to suffer, but, but, the, but nature and the earth itself. And that's, that also kind of translates to the state as well. I think it's Ross speaking to uh, Malcolm and Macduff says that Scotland is afraid to know itself. Yeah. Um, so again, it's that idea that the disruption of that order means that it's not it's not just the people at the top who are being affected. It's the it's it goes through the state and all the way, like you said, all the way through that great chain of being to nature itself. It personifies Scotland, doesn't it? it says Scotland is sick, and every day a new gash is added to her wounds. This idea that Scotland is almost a personified and female country was suffering under that tyranny and I, I think what's what's really interesting about what Shakespeare does with Macbeth here and, and this kind of this idea of a tyrannical ruler is how pressing it is considering kind of the you know we have so many examples throughout recent history and throughout the modern world of what a tyrant looks like and how the public reacts to him what I find compelling about Macbeth's portrayal here is how how accurate he, he is. So, I mean, initially we're just going to look at the way Macbeth kind of initially transforms into this figure. And then we're also going to look a little bit about the reaction of the public to him and how we through, see that through some of the minor characters. But it's also kind of spot on. And I think I have to draw parallels with kind of looking at King Owen or like different tyrants around the world. And there's so many parallels with both the, the rationale and the reasoning of the tyrant themselves and the kind of the you know, necessary reaction of the public to kind of like stay alive in this kind of climate and culture of fear. 
So let's just look at Macbeth at the start. And what's interesting is the way he, as you've, you've touched upon, the way he openly acknowledges the worth and the virtue of King Duncan. Um, one of the first things he says to him is, this, you know, the service and loyalty I owe in doing it pays itself. Yeah. So this idea is like, I'm absolutely so proud to serve you. You are the perfect ruler. But we also see in the opening of the play that there's that kind of repressed desire there. And there's that duality when he says, stars hide your fires. Absolutely. I think that's an important thing to acknowledge in Tyrants. And you touched on the Jungian shadow in a previous episode. And I think what where we see the, where Tyrants begin is with this ambition. So the most important thing to acknowledge here is that Shakespeare is saying, be wary of people with vaulting ambition. Yeah. Because they have the potential to come turn into these tyrants. As it goes on in that soliloquy, obviously he, you know, when he's um and ang over whether or not he should kill King Duncan, he says, you know, so great and his so clear in his great office that his virtues. He talks about his worth as a king, but again, that's not enough to stop him because his his ambition is greater than his respect for King yeah. Duncan as a ruler. Obviously, he then goes on to kill him, and then I think what's also interesting is the way he talks about Banquo when he's thinking about whether or not he wants to kill Banquo. And at one point, he talks about Banquo having a royalty of nature. And he goes on to say, under him, my genius is rebu rebuked. Yeah. And what's interesting about Macbeth's relationship with King Duncan and with Banquo is that in both instances, Macbeth acknowledges they are better men and more suited to rule. Yeah. But what is the compelling factor? It's his ambition. Mm -hmm. So what we see in the portrayal of tyranny here is that it is ambition which leads people to these positions. So it's just that warning sign that you know, coming back to that theme of ambition, you need to watch out for people who are ambitious. Yeah. And that if you have this desire in with it within you to kind of go for an office that you're undeserving of, that this is a negative characteristic. And this is in many ways a kind of a conservative play, warning against that, that kind of human trait. And I think we really see that with that portrayal. I'd just say whilst we're discussing Banco, that obviously I think we talked about it in the context episode, but it's a subtle nod there to King James himself, mm -hmm. who had seen in his lineage that he was a direct descendant of a, of a noble man called Banquo. Mm. And there's even sort of reference in the play when the witches give Banquo his prophecies, because of course, when we're looking at kingship, that they prophesize that Banquo's descendants and sons will be kings. Yeah. So Banquo won't be his descendants will. And there's a really famous anecdote about when this was first performed for King James, that when they show the scene about the, the lineage of kings coming up, they actually held a mirror to King James in the audience as if yeah. to say that he was going to be that descendant of Banquo. Yeah. They also had one of the apparitions holding two orbs, one to represent England, of course, where King James was the current ruler, and one to represent Scotland, where King James had been King James the, before that. Mm -hmm. um, so with Banquo, although we're not going to discuss it in depth in this episode, it's really important if you do get a question on kingship or Banquo especially, that you can look at that direct and that should really color your analysis of Banquo. It's always going to be even even when he's kind of like like his death or that that little hint of ambition that he talks yeah. about. Yeah. Even then, he's still it's going to be a positive. It's a real yeah. positive portrayal, yeah. isn't yeah, it? Definitely. And that's um, Shakespeare definitely pandering to his uh, as you would patron. as you would. So following that, you know, I think Macbeth in his own mind, I think the way he reasons and rationalizes, he's kind of like right, I'm going to do all these terrible things to get to where I need to be. Well, and so there. I think he does intend to be a good king and we we see, you know, whatever that might mean for him. But we see that with the banquet. He kind of, everyone comes in and says, you know, you know you're under degrees and, and the least a hearty welcome. He wants to be this kind of generous ruler. He wants to, I think, start modelling himself and what he's seen with King Duncan. And I think what Shakespeare is almost doing here is showing that, I mean, we, we almost see it foreshadowed earlier when Macbeth says something along the lines of, you know, 
Yeah, those who live by the sword die by the sword. That's not the actual quotation, but he foreshadows his own death. That kind of if you get something through violence, it will beget more violence. And we see that here. He tries to kind blood of... Blood has blood, has blood, has blood. Exactly. But the moment he, we're at this this banquet, he then sees Banquo's ghost and everything just kind of falls to pieces. And again, it comes back to this idea that your, your ambition will catch up with you. And that because Macbeth is ultimately a usurper, he is unfit to rule. And again, it's enforcing this message that ambition cannot tr tr trump the divine r r right of kings. Macbeth shouldn't be king. He's a t yeah. tyrant because of his ambition and because he's usurped the natural order. So again, that, that really links to this idea of uh, Macbeth's reasons for being king. Like, why did you said he wanted to be that good king, but mm. um, was he ever truly? He was never truly interested in those networks of meanings that we spoke about, like the leader, the father, the warrior, the judge. He wanted to be the king for for power's sake. The king's yeah. um, and the really telling quotation before the murder before the murder banquet is arranged is. Um, for mine own blood, all other causes shall give way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just a really clear indication from, from Shakespeare to say, this man is not worthy of kingship. He prioritises himself over the state and all other causes. So that's, that's again, the, the, the leader, the warrior, the father, the judge, but also uh, the, you know, the state, the people of Scotland, um, his relationship with Lady Macbeth, even with his queen, and, and maintaining that, that kind of that order as well. So to if, to say that he um, kind of he sells the kingship, mm -hmm. he, he sells it. He sells the whole idea for his own good, and and his and again going to the weird sisters again. He's bent to know yeah. that image of him kind of like bending the knee to say, I you know I I'm subservient to these supernatural solicitings. I'm going to be I'm going to just simply give give over all this power which is entrusted in me to them. Yeah. And to do that is just I mean it, it it's it's a crime which is. Um, comparable with the with the with the regicide itself. Yeah, yeah. That that you know that kind of and that message is even further compounded later, not long after, when we see a conversation between Lennox and I think it's just a lord. I don't think it's a titled character, and in that you know the word tyrant is used kind of prolifically, and yeah. that's really emphasising the message now. And you know this is kind of expedient from Shakespeare in that obviously we can't see all of the things Macbeth does as a ruler, but this conversation is almost kind of a bit of exposition catching us up. And they keep using this term tyrant. And there's lots of interesting little kind of takeaways from here. So in this conversation, we see that it's a bit of a kind of, they have a knowing wink to the fact that Macbeth's obviously arranged for the murder of uh, Banquo when they say men must not walk too late. So they're, they're kind of, they're mocking him, but in a way where the, it's clear that there's also a climate of fear. Yeah. The conversation's quite guarded. So we simultaneously see how, you know, people living under Macbeth's reign are afraid of him while also no, recognising he has no legitimacy, that he is a tyrant, a usurper, who's trying to rule through fear. He's the complete antithesis there from yeah. Duncan, who we were criticising because no one feared him. However, mm -hmm. this is someone who everyone fears so much, mm -hmm. yet he's a tyrant who has no worth on the throne. And then we see them kind of talk very positively about kind of uh, King Edward down in England. There's this idea of they're praying for food on their table. Yeah. So we get all these different reasons why Macbeth is clearly a tyrant and a bad ruler. He's putting himself first. He's kind of got this culture of fear. And what I think is often interesting about tyrants is a childlike psychology they have, where it's about their whims being met. It's about their needs. There's an inherent selfishness. Because there's no limits imposed upon them, they can act like a kind of a child in its true estate, completely well, down to their own when whims. He, when he recognises that what he's doing is wrong, but he says, I'm in blood step so far, yeah. that it'd almost be pointless to go back. He recognises that's what a child would do, you know. Yeah. Oh, I'm already a little bit in trouble, so I might as well go the whole way. Yeah, it's that definitely. childlike yeah. attitude to... Making one mistake, 
and then thinking there's no going back, so he may as well continue on his quest for it. As well as trivialising the app itself, if it's just kind of, again, just painting as this, just he's lost all sense of himself or his morality. Yeah, absolutely. And then as just one of the final things there is then they kind of praise Macduff and they're, one of the lords is aware that he's going down to England to, to speak to Malcolm. And I think it's really interesting that we see the scene before Macbeth kind of orders the death of the Macduff family. And that's kind of the, for me, the symbolic moment. You know, there's one thing that represents what tyrants do and it's that they brutally cut down anyone who they think opposes him. Yeah, and this it's just, is the moment he becomes yeah, a butcher, isn't it, he, when he goes yeah. for Macbeth's family. And it's, again, that resonates so much with what we know about tyrants. It's the, it's the brutality. If if King Duncan was too much the carrot, not enough the stick, well, then we see here Macbeth is too much the stick and not enough the carrot. He's, he's too brutal, yeah. he's too cutting, and he's a tyrant. He, there's, no, there's nothing holding his hand back there. He just brutally cuts down with no consideration for innocence, no consideration for how people react to this. And yet, yes, perhaps morality can be a problem for a ruler, but it's also something you still need to respect because people need to not just think you're a monster. Yeah. Um, and we see that very much kind of in the battle to overthrow him. Angus at one point says, um, you know, those he commands move through... Only in command, nothing yeah. in love. Exactly, absolutely. Then he goes on this idea of clothing. Uh, now does he feel his... Uh... Now does he feel his title hang loose about him like a giant's robe upon a dwarfish thief and obviously with that clothing imagery being reminiscent of the very start of the play where in act one scene three Macbeth questions when titled with Thane of Cawdor he says well the Thane of Cawdor lives why do you dress me in borrowed robes now again this is definitely a quote which is up for debate we always talk about multiple inferences you can make you could look there is that Macbeth being humble is that Macbeth respecting his place in the order mm -hmm. however even though on the surface he's pretending there to be quite modest and he feels like the title's too big for him, he's not deserving of it just yet. Just a few asides later, he reveals thing. his true intention, yeah, doesn't yeah. he? So that's all a facade. Yeah. So actually, we have this repeated clothing imagery sort of crafted later by Shakespeare to bring us back to this idea that kingship is something that needs to be worn with real pride. It needs to be something that fits you. It needs to be something that's anointed but also something that you're comfortable yeah. wearing that you have the natural skill set and that you've not to just acquired through ambition yeah. but through yeah. Yeah. it's a comment on worthiness isn't it um it's this idea that he he and it's not it's it's the, his stature as a man yeah um, he can't fill that it's that it's like the, the saying like you've got big boots to fill you've yeah got those big robes to fill he if he if his whole uh, purpose is ambition um, personal ambition and lust for power and he got it by such um, you know like he played so foully to achieve it yeah. um, then he can never fulfil that role um, and again we've got you. I think what we're a bit light on is our AO2 like our method mm -hmm. but what, what does that similarly suggest this dwarfish thief you know he's, yeah. something, he's, something, he's conniving and he's, and he's sneaky um, he's not he's not respectable at all in that, yeah. in, in that imagery and in and that context as well the kind of the they saw dwarfs as you know any kind of physical deformity was seen as a representation of your character as well the robes being too big for him it's, it's something that he can never fulfill but it's also something he's drowning in that will yeah. necessarily they hang loose about yeah. him they're actually limiting him in fact yeah. is he could have continued to be as Duncan wanted to plant him a good thane a good ruler a good leader a good soldier but actually, because he went for the title that was too big for him, it was always going to hang loose about him, almost tripping him up along the way as he made mistakes. And again, so I think, you know, just bring it back. So, you know, we see he's a tyrant here, but for two reasons. One, he's a usurper who is not in his natural place. His ambition and a conservative message by Shakespeare here, 
know your place, yeah. know where you belong, don't let your ambition take you too far. But also we see he is a tyrant because he rules too much through fear and not enough through kind of what will make a good ruler kind of care and love and putting the people first. And it's almost, it's that Goldilocks syndrome here. It's kind of like King Duncan, too loving, <laughs> Macbeth, too, too cruel. And that Angus quotation sets it up really perfectly. If only there was a character who'd come in later who was just <laughs> the right amount of love and just the right amount of, amount of fear. But I just to give Macbeth a bit of a break and kind of, he has a moment of reprieve from this idea of him being a tyrant at the very end when he acknowledges kind of all the things you would expect in, in old age, you would expect kind of honour, love and obedience. He says, I must look not to have, but in their stead curses, not loud but deep. And Macbeth accepts here his failings as a ruler and how by history ultimately he will be cursed with fear. Mm. So no one's going to, kind of with real fear because he's such a monster. I just think that's a a real kind of, yeah, Macbeth has several epiphanies here. Kind of, you know, he knows that he knows he's been a bad ruler. He knows he's undeserving. He knows he's a tyrant in both senses of the word. And finally, he kind of acknowledges that and he faces his death, accepting that he will be, a, you know, a monster in history, having mm-hmm. seen as deserving of his death and undeserving of the throne. Yep, and uh, it, I think we've we've skipped a bit in terms of chronology, but obviously you, you alluded to our um, kind of like the person, the saviour who's going to come along in that, in this, in, it's not Banquo, it's not Macduff, it is Malcolm. Um, Good old Malcolm. Yeah, so he, so um, I think an important thing to think about with Malcolm is just something that is, uh, we, we, we spoke about with Lady Macbeth that she disappears from stage after yeah. kind of like, or her, we don't. We see her in Act Three, and then she, we don't really hear from much until Act Five, um, and then like that kind of signifies her, her dwindling, decree, yeah, power. dwindling or deteriorating power or influence over Macbeth. Um, but Malcolm, we we see in that we see in Act One. We the last time we see him is Act Two, Scene Three, after the murder, mm-hmm. um, and then he disappears until Act Four, Scene yeah. Three. So he's he's kind of off stage. And I think that's an interesting kind of like thing to think about. There's a this archetype of transformation and rebirth. Is that he leaves like frightened boy. Um, so after the murder, him and Donald Blaine are speaking in kind of like hushed tones to one another. Yeah. Um, Malcolm asks, why do we hold our tongues? Yeah. When, and he's asking, like, we, ha- we have the most argument to make here. You know, our father is dead. Um, I am the Prince of Cumberland. Yeah, the I'm, I, I'm due to inherit. And yet they fear that they, they, if they do, they're in a position where they could, be, they could be accused of the murder or being complicit or they could be the next to be murdered. Um, so he's, he says how, like, nor our strong sorrow upon foot of motion suggesting that he's not ready for his grief to, to turn into action of revenge. Yeah, right. um, and then he disappears. So we, see, we, hear, we hear about him, we hear that he's in England, um, but we don't him. hear from him. It's so easy to assume that he's fled there with fear, but actually yeah. then we soon find that he's raising an army, he's actually gone yeah. to see Pius Edward, he's, he's actually he's left on grounds of strategy there, yeah, which as, makes as, him a good king. As Stalin once said, I'm not retreating, I'm advancing in another direction. Nice, that's good. Oh, he's good. Falling, fall, falling with style. You yeah. go from Stalin to uh, Toy Story. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think there, there is that is an archetype that you see in in lots of fiction. So really famous examples are the Lion King. So Simba is banished, and then he comes back after a certain Spoiler. amount of yeah, sorry, uh, after a certain amount of development. Um, I'm going to steal your usual Batman reference, Ted, where. Uh, Batman ends up in a pit where he has to kind of like go through this kind of uh, almost like a it's it, it's a um, rite of passage. So he goes yeah. through a rite of passage where he becomes um, either a man or becomes someone who's now worthy, um, worthy to take the throne. And he's um, all about avenging a father's death. Is that the yeah. link here? 
Yeah, it definitely is because we we said before that um, with the divine right, uh, sorry, with the networks of meaning for the king is that one of those meanings is the father. Mm. Um, so if, if if the father has fallen, um, then the the son must kind of like take take take, take that mantle or avenge avenge him and become and kind of like again remove the tyrants or and grow into um, the robes he's been given. Exactly. Oh, I like it. Yeah. So uh, so Mal- and Malcolm does this. Now we said before that. Uh, we talked about Machiavellian theory and there's always loads of confusion and conjecture about Machiavelli and about what it really means and what he was really saying. Yeah, Alex had to teach me properly. But we, yeah, well, yeah, I think if you take a, a reading of what he was saying was that it was a kind of a handbook on how to rule, like what you must do and um, what you must prioritise is not your own selfish needs like Macbeth did, your selfish um, mm-hmm. ambition, nor being a good person like Duncan did. And slave to virtue. Well, yeah, that's an interesting phrase. Are you come up with yourself? Yeah. I was thinking I got that from the, from the prince. Um, but, it's, yeah, it sounds like something he would have said. If you're a slave you're to virtue, then uh, that, like Duncan, um, then you are naturally, you're necessarily very weak and, and ineffective. Yeah. And either way, the ones, the people, the, what suffers is the state. So in order to be an effective king or a good king, um, you must prioritise the state. That means being ruthless but being judiciously ruthless it means being cunning um it means being cynical in the way that you treat your enemies both within and without of the state and um it's basically an ideal that duncan and Macbeth both fail miserably at but just for very very different reasons Um, i suppose it's that idea you know you're being ruthless for the right reasons you're making the tough decisions yeah but you're not doing it for your own benefit you're doing it to benefit the Political pragmatism. Yeah. Yeah. So to be a, a pragmatist. So again, when, when we see Malcolm after he's gone off stage, we can assume he's gone through this transformation. You know, he's, he's, he's managed to um, win to his side an, an English army. Um, he's got Scottish thanes abandoning Macbeth and coming to support his yeah. claim. Um, and the, the scene where this is all kind of revealed to us is when he, when he meets with Macduff. Um, and there's, there's two things to think about here. We don't, we don't, it's quite a lengthy conversation that they have. But Malcolm tricks Macduff and then he manipulates him. Mm-hmm. So, so Malcolm um, tricks Macduff by saying that he has none of the king becoming graces. He says he has no justice, he's not, he has veri- no verity, temperance or stableness. Um, so again, we talk about those networks of meaning. He fails in this ideal of a leader, a father, um, the wise protector, the warrior, the judge, the, um, someone who upholds the natural order. Um, but we, we almost immediately see that this was just a facade. It was a trick. Um, and he was looking to read Macduff's reaction. So what he was doing was um, he was suspicious of Macduff because he thought that perhaps Mac- Macbeth had sent him yeah. um, to, to kind of lure him back. It was a trap and he would therefore be in danger. We can already see that he is a foil for Duncan. Um, Duncan would probably, you know, be be trusting straight away. He's he looks to trust people, um, and there's a there's an important quotation that if you're going to learn one quotation from Machiavelli to apply here, it's that um, he says that one must be a fox to recognise traps and a lion to fight off wolves. So what Malcolm does, he doesn't have that trusting nature. He's that he has a cunning. He has that cunning um, and that kind of again that pragmatism to mm-hmm. see that to to see to test Macduff. Yeah. Um, and then he later, and then just a, a few like a few lines later, after Macduff has been informed of his family's murder at the hands of Macbeth, um, Malcolm's almost immediate reaction is to say to him, "Dispute it like a man." Yeah. So already he's saying, you know, um, he's not he's he's barely offering condolences. He's saying, "Do you know what you should do? You should fight back. You should get revenge yeah. on Macbeth." He says, B- 
be, let this be the whetstone of your sword. He's saying, let this action, this grief, this pain um, be, the, be the, the kind of like the driving Despair, force yeah. behind your action. Let that allow you, that, let that drive you forwards um, to, to get revenge. And again, that's, that's in Malcolm's interest, but crucially, it's also in the interest of Scotland. Um, mm-hmm. We're talking about removing a tyrant. Malcolm is looking to, um, to exploit and to, and you know, he, he sees, he sees Macduff as kind of like an, an asset which is disposable. You know, send him because he's somebody who has this kind of like this burning hatred of Macbeth. Yeah. But even when even when he talks about like with his ally, allies with like young Seward when he's when he's killed, he said he, it's it's kind of like again shows that kind of his willingness to to sacrifice what is necessary for the cause. Yeah. Um, and again, he's that lion. He's a he's a he's a military force. He fills that that um network again the the meaning of the warrior. Where he, when he, even when he tells them to like cut cut off a branch and use that to cover their approach, you know, That's he, strategic. yeah, he and everything he's doing is make every, it's just taking the right the right steps at the right time for the right reasons, yeah. and that is why he he is able to bring that balance, that equilibrium between the the trusting King Duncan and the tyrant Macbeth. Malcolm is the ideal, that Machiavellian ideal. And one other really important thing that I actually think is worth talking about, we spoke about Duncan's virtues being pleading like angels. Mm. And we said that that simile, you can say that it means that he's good and he's pure, he's appointed by God. Um, but what, what Machiavelli said is that a leader should have this paradoxical idea of criminal virtue, which means that you, you are able to act in a kind of criminal fashion, meaning that you can kill, you can be ruthless, you can make an example of people, um, you can uh, put the butcher's head up on a spike once you've, mm. once you've killed him and deposed him. However, you're doing that for the right reasons. The virtue yeah. in that is that it's for the state, it's for the good of the people, it's, for, it's to maintain order, it's to prevent war. Um, and because Malcolm does that, he, he fulfills that Machiavellian ideal. He is the, the, the rightful king, but also a good king. Yeah, and I think you talk about how uh, Malcolm is a foil for Duncan in the fact that he doesn't trust Macduff, but he's also a foil, a foil for Macbeth in that scene because we see that Macbeth is encouraged throughout the play, often by Lady Macbeth, to put on this false face, mm-hmm. to be the serpent underneath, but to portray himself as an innocent flower. Whereas here, we, we know that Macbeth only ever puts on that false face for selfish gain, whereas here we see... Malcolm putting on his false face to test others and to ensure the good for the state in the yeah. end. Yeah, and the thing, yeah, I think the what I was thinking about that scene with Malcolm and um, Duff is it's so clunky. The dialogue it's so is confusing. Kind of, People's often struggle with that. And it's it, quite confusing. And it, yeah. it kind of like often like Shakespeare's dialogue is brilliant. It's so natural. The kind of the, the repartee between characters is, is wonderful. But that is such like a weird scene where kind of yeah. you know Duff turns away as like oh it's terrible. Yeah. There's no hope for Scotland. It's just so well, it's, unrealistic. It's, it's very contrived, isn't it? Yeah, which, but which is a sign that he's almost kind of like sacrifice sacrificing his art for the message there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which shows the importance of everything else. Just you know, wonderfully outlined. Of that, that idea of what a king must be, of kind of using those tactics and those strategies to, to achieve that objective. Um, so, yeah, I can I think that analysis of Malcolm is spot on there, and I think that's really, really good. Absolutely. So we talked about how, in previous podcasts, Al, your message is always that art imitates life, isn't it? We talk about how Shakespeare poses questions rather than answering them. And I don't think Shakespeare does have the right answer for what an ideal king looks like. Um, but obviously, writing in a politically sensitive time, in the wake of the gunpowder plot, he certainly wants to appease King James, his patron. He certainly wants to appeal to the notion of maintaining order, of, mm-hmm. of s- sort of not going above your station, not going above your rank. 
Um, he doesn't answer any questions directly about what a good king looks like other than in the character of Malcolm. But he certainly raises two characters who, for, for reasons we've explained in the podcast, don't conform to an ideal king. In fact, actually are irresponsible and negligent kings for different mm. reasons. And that's Duncan and Macbeth. Unfit to rule. Right. So sadly, that uh, concludes our conversation. Uh, we thank you for listening and we wish you all the best in your English revision. And we hope that your ship of revision, much like the theme of kingship itself, stays steady afloat. It's oh. goodbye from me, Ted. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Bye from me, Alex. I can't even cope with that, Ted. Goodbye from me, Emma.